If you like this podcast, I'd appreciate it if you would click the like button and also subscribe. So in this episode, I'm taking the highlights from the nine episodes I recorded in 2023. And I hope you enjoy. Look for more content in 2024. So a lot's lot's really evolved over the years in terms of the expectations of leaders, right? I mean, now we're asking, in some cases, requiring leaders to be more empathetic, more mindful, take better care of themselves so they can take better care of their employees. Have, and I know this is, you know, your business, but have we gotten too far with expecting too much from the leaders in the companies? I mean, in some cases, you know, and for what we, what I do and, and what you had done, you know, on the real estate side is you're, you're trying to attract all these people to come into your office and make it safe, healthy, productive, all those sort of things. But what, what should the expectations be of an organization leadership versus what should be on an employee and that individual's personal? You said, you know, you can't separate the personal from the professional, but there seems to be some need for that, you know, demarcation, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the, the thing that we have to remember is that we're all human beings and a big aspect of what makes us human is our ability to connect on an emotional level with other human beings. And that is what, when you feel connection, when you feel chemistry, when you feel invested in someone and cared for, and that you care about another person, that is really because there's an emotional connection there that's underlying whatever that is that you're feeling. And so for a long time, the workplace was all about just show up, produce, produce, produce. You know, you're you're either a part of input or output in the company, and that's what you're there for. So we were taught to be fragmented versions of who we are. But we also know that that led to these terms are not new terms, but the quiet quitting with the one foot out the door it used to just be called one foot out the door, right? Like people were already planning an exit because they were not happy where they were. And historically, and I was guilty of this in my career for sure. But historically, we would say, you know, the grass is greener over there. So I'm going to quit this job or I'm going to quit this leader or whatever it is that was bothering me in a certain organization or in a role. And I'm going to go do this one because I'll be happier. Six months later, you're just as unhappy because the grass is usually just as brown as it was in the other place. That's because it's about the inner game. It's about who you are and how you're showing up. For me, it was always about my approach to the workplace or to the people. It, I could easily blame the company or I could have blamed you know, the work I was doing or the team I was working with. But in reality, it was how was I managing the stress and the anxiety and the pressure, right? It wasn't about all the other things. So we used to look at it from that angle. And we used to say, you know, my fulfillment lies elsewhere. But now leaders are really the ones that are looked at to say, if you're leading a fulfilled life, then you're going to show up with that in the workplace. And we're all going to get to experience what that is. And we're also going to have permission as employees to live a fulfilled life. We don't have to feel like our, our life is compartmentalized and I'm this person at my job and I'm this person at home. That leads to burnout and it leads to resentment and all kinds of other negative emotions that we really don't want in the workplace. And we don't really want to have to deal with the wrath or the erratic behaviors of someone that displays those emotions. But at the end of the day, it's all being, I mean, behavior is all driven by where are you emotionally? So this is really just taking 
what it means to be more human into account and teaching people the stuff that we've never been taught. You know, we weren't taught this in college. We weren't taught this in grade school. These aren't skills that we have. We have to learn them. And how do our tax rates compare to some of the other states in the process that you just described? Is it similar throughout? Is there some continuity? No. Illinois is one of the more, how can I say this, unique and involved processes and probably in the country. It's very confusing for, you know, we represent a lot of REITs and, you know, investors from other states doing industrial or commercial properties. And it's very confusing for them to get their arms around this because we are very unique and very a little more complicated than it probably needs to be. But from what I have read, uh, I don't have any firsthand knowledge of this, but what I've read is that Illinois is ranked in the top 10 in the most burdensome states for property taxes in the country. So I I also, you know, dealing with these REITs and these out-of-state investors realize that a lot of them are, you know, trying to extricate themselves because of the tax burdens in some of these municipalities. You know, there are some that are just out of control. And that's a function, not a function of mismanagement of the municipality. It's more a function of their tax base just isn't there. They don't have a lot of retail or, you know, they don't have car dealerships or a mall, things like that that are driving sales tax. And so, you know, the burden for, you know, keeping the fire department running, keeping the police department up and running, you know, making sure that, you know, the parks are all, you know, the grass is being mowed. All of that costs money. And so it's got to come from somewhere. And unfortunately, it's going to come from the taxpayer who lives in that municipality or owns a building in that municipality. So it's a tough balance. And I know a lot of municipalities, it, it's hard because they want to drive more businesses into their community. But you know, these businesses look at the tax rates and they're like, ah, we just can't do it. We can't pull it off. And so, I mean, even with incentives, it's sometimes difficult for them to attract new businesses into their communities. One of the misconceptions that people have, and, and sorry, if you, if you want to ask another question, go ahead. But one of the misconceptions that, that people have, and you know, people bring up the Sears Tower all the time, or Willis Tower, excuse me, as a prime example, because it traded at some point in time for you know a billion dollars, and yet its tax bill was only valuing it at, I think it was 450 or 475 million. And somebody said, well, how can that be possible? And what people aren't taking into consideration is, you know, the the reason people pay that kind of a value for that kind of a property is it's an investment. You know, they're looking at the long term and they have projections and they have pro formas and they say, OK, if I'm generating this kind of rent, then it's going to I'll be able to you know not only cover the debt service, but I'll be able to make a little money, make some improvements and do all these things. And the assessor really doesn't or the, the public doesn't really take that into consideration. They just say, oh, my gosh, you traded for a billion one. So that's what the market value should be at by the assessor. Uh, I mean, that would be crushing. And then second of all, nothing would ever trade for its true value based upon its income or its potential income. Because people, all they'd think of is, you know, OK, well, here comes Fritz Kage down the street and he's going to hammer me as soon as I buy this building. And, and I'm not talking just of the Sears Tower. That's the one that's that sticks out the most. But it's it's a lot of industrial buildings. You know, you're, you're in the same field I am. You see these guys who are buying these buildings. And one of the things that, you know, we have done for potential buyers is we kind of run, you know, back of the cocktail napkin math so they can know going into it, okay, this is what we think your real estate taxes are going to end up at based on that purchase price because that is what Fritz Kage has been doing. You know, instead of looking at the income value, we're having to look at the purchase price, which is kind of different. 
you know, that's that's a worst case scenario, which really shouldn't be happening. So but that that's the kind of the reality that we're in these days. Are there partnerships that, you know, Sterling Bay puts on with with the universities? What is the relationship between a developer real estate group like yours and a university? That's a great question. So Chicago, for having those four universities that are so well known, so close together, they have not historically, they have not worked well together, which is such a Again, a, a big shame. And and you look out in Boston, all of those universities out there, they do there is a lot of cross collaboration there and sharing of information and of course competing for talent, but sharing for information is meaningful. There are a lot of a lot of them are doing the same science. So why not share and I know elevate that science quicker? So I think the Chan Zuckerberg, I keep going back to that, but that Chan Zuckerberg biohub here, their whole in tension and one of their thesis is to bring the three universities together. So that's what they did out in California. I think I believe it was Berkeley, UCLA and Stanford that they brought together and they it's been a total success story in terms of sharing information there. So I think Chicago has not done a good job of that yet, but it will do a better job going forward. In terms of our involvement with those universities, we're talking, we've had intimate conversations with all of them. We also plan at at the Lincoln Yards neighborhood, we are talking to a lot of kind of adjacent uses, ancillary uses to life sciences. So having a medical office building there, a very valuable need up there for the community, but also to have some close usage, close ties to the university systems would be great. Also, the it's it's not just the medical office. It's not just the life science users, but it's like medical device. Um, we're talking to some of these medical device users, and they are pitching right now their product from the middle of nowhere. Can't say where, but they want to be closer to their clients. They want to be closer to the life science users, the scientists. They want to be closer to the hospital systems that are using their products. So it's creating this like sticky ecosystem, and then you also add in the VC money having that VC money, who's ultimately a critical step of becoming a successful life sciences company, you have to have that capital. In Chicago, there are some VC firms here that are in the life sciences space. Like if you think of like Arch Venture Partners, very well-known name, but a lot of these groups like Polaris, Atlas, they're out on the coast and we're trying to get them here. So to, to kind of like complete that puzzle. But the whole pitch of Lincoln Yards is to create this, not just life sciences users and only life science users. It's this broadening kind of umbrella of tangential uses to make it as sticky as possible. You mentioned Hoffman Estates, so we're going to switch to the Hoffman Estates project now. You know, great success in in Homedale, 97% occupancy, and certainly on your way there for Hoffman. How, How important has it been to get the community involved, you know, Kevin Kramer, the economic development, the, the village of Hoffman. I know you got a large TIF. I mean, how, how important is it to get the community involved in, in this project? You, you can't do it without the community. The community is everything. We look at a lot of, a lot of projects come our way because of our success. You know, uh, we're, we're, we're pretty well renowned for what we've done. And, and almost a, a, a week doesn't go by that we don't have some, you know, somebody you know, calling or emailing or knocking on our door and saying, I have another Bell Works for you. But one of the filters that we use is the political filter, the community filter. Do they really want this? Because life's too short to go. You know, we spent five years 
in 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 the you know Bell Works in in New Jersey just to get the entitlements. Now to the to the to the you know credit or understanding of the community that we're in, we didn't know what what we were doing either. We knew we had we were setting to create something great, but we didn't have all the details worked out. It evolved as as we went, and although we're very true to the form and the the formula, but the details the details took a lot of time to flesh out and it took many years. When we came to Hoffman Estates, because they were behind it and they they said. This is what we want. They came to New Jersey. They came here. They looked at it. They they came to us and they said, we like what you've done. You should do this again. We went to them and we said, you know, we can't do it unless we get certain things. The, the, the zoning has to be changed to allow for residential because we need a residential presence. It has to be a 24-7 eyes on the street type of thing. And they were very agreeable. I remember we gave them the number 550 residential units and they said, we will, we will do that. And when we when we closed on the building, our zoning was already in place. Their ability to put retail, multi-tenants. So the community is everything. But that's that's only part of the story. Today, the, there's so many, so many roadblocks and speed bumps and things that happen. The ability to have a community that's solidly behind you, that 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 works with you and understands that, you know, this is not. You know, just from a, just from a, you know, we get the attention. You know, sometimes you get stuck in a community that's not that interested, and you're waiting for your approvals. And there's somebody who's trying to get their their backyard fence changed from a four foot fence to a six foot fence, and it takes three months, and you're behind that. We've been, we've been, we've got all the attention that we need. The mayor's entire team has been great. They they've just been working with us. We have partners, and of course, you mentioned the the, the TIF. Without the TIF, we would not have done it. Now to your question about health and, uh, and, and, and wellness and things like that. Crucial. That's one of the main things. You know, you talk about health and it's physical, it's emotional. All of these things come together by providing a great, inspiring place for people. It's walkable. We're, we're as large as some of the largest skyscrapers in the country, but we're only three stories, three to four stories tall in, in Chicagoland and in, in New Jersey. Where we're, we're five to six. Um, everything is walkable. Everything is spread out. There's huge, just so much, just physically to get around. You have open space. Um, our design team has focused on um, biophilic design. You see these trees that we brought in to bring not just atmosphere, but actually fit to provide fresh air and clean air in, in, in the building. The, the, the building itself, both about both bell works, the amount of clean air turns that we're able to do, you know, cycle the fresh air in in and out of the building. All of these things are are very health centric and and appreciated by our community. We also have a tremendous health club in, in Chicago land. It's a thirty thousand square foot. It's up and running. It's professionally run by we call it Fit Lab, fully built out. This, uh, run by Kinma Fitness, best in class. We have another uh, IT gym, which is a which is a, a privately owned tenant that's there. And I think we're going to have a few more to come. So health and wellness is a big part of it. What we've seen in New Jersey, and we hope to see in Chicago and soon, we have an entire medical wing. We have everything from uh, physical therapy, acupuncture. You could get, you could do cyrogenics, oxygen, inhaling, who knows what? There's there's a medical, literally doctors, and I get my teeth done downstairs. Uh, you know, there's a there's a dentist. So that's also part of that's part of the metro. Bringing all of that together uh, is something that we've done and we're doing in in, in both both locations. 
the function we were at, there was discussion about the LaSalle Street reimagination. And there was one particular property that was discussed. I think it was 30 North LaSalle. From your, your opinion, taking a building like that in the city of Chicago, what are the must-haves that it would need, you know, require in order to, to become a you know, vertical farm as opposed to an office building. You talked about some of the things that us already has as far as an infrastructure, but can you talk about the uh, kind of the environment around it that, that needs yeah. to happen as well? Yeah, it was it was quite an exciting discussion. Lee Golub is looking at how he can make those office buildings more productive. And the fact of introducing a vertical farm in an office building in the in the central business district was very exciting to me. I got pretty excited because I hadn't really thought about that. There is a synergy between existing structures that you'd find in the warehouses or even office buildings. They're, they're built for a lot of loading and the idea of creating a mixed-use environment where you're taking the, the producer, which would be the grower of edible food, and connecting them with the consumer. That's a very sustainable notion. I think that's where things are, are headed. What has to happen in these buildings in the city is really you have to get the benefits of scale. Uh, and it has to be scalable. We're not talking about having, you know, growing beds in your backyard. These are, have to be really operations are automatic, automate, fully automated. The Gotham Greens facilities are fully automated. They're use of minimum labor, a lot of it's robotic, a lot of it's not touched by hand at all. So to get it to be more of a productive asset, it has to be really a machine for growing food. And that's the kind of thing that we're seeing developing in Northern Europe. And that's what we're developing with Gotham Greens. They're using about 10% of the water that's traditionally used in in-ground farming they're only using about 10% of the energy that's used for a traditional in-ground farming. And they have about eight growing seasons per year because they're not outside subject to the climate. So you're indoors, you control the climate, and you're getting about eight growing seasons per year. So that really extends the, the food product. And then again, when it's located in the urban areas, it's there's very zero food waste because it eliminates all the distribution channels that traditionally happen when you grow food like in California and have to ship it to Chicago. It, it would take maybe three weeks. You're probably passing through maybe three or four distributors' hands. And by the time it gets to your grocery shelf, it has a shelf life of maybe a week, two weeks at the most. So there's a lot of food waste in that system. And not to mention the food miles, meaning the a lot of people think the waste is really in the shipping and the and the food and the the carbon that's emitted in the from the shipping to get it here. But really, it's 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 in the the loss of the product when you grow it next to where you consume it. It's got an extended shelf life, either in the store or if it's next day in your in your uh, refrigerator. It's going to be a five six week shelf life versus having produce wilted within a week. So there's a lot of advantages. It's pretty exciting. I'm trying to visualize this, Carl. Help me. You've got a, you know, call it a 32, you know, floor building in the central loop. Are you, you know, creating holes in the in the in the core for this vertical farming? Or would you keep the floors the way they are? 
what would this what would this vertical farm look like? Well, I think vertical farms indoors, like the application we're talking about in Chicago, it could work a couple different ways. And one way is a vertical, basically a vertical structure. And the plants are on trays, if you will, that are, they, they revolve, they go up to the 32 foot clear or the 24 foot clear, or 11 foot clear, if you have that in an office building, and then they come back down. So they're cycling up and down and you're basically working the plant on, on one level. So you're planting it on the way up and you're harvesting it on the way down. That's one way that works. Another way in an office building that has maybe a, a 12 foot, 13 foot floor to floor height would be to create these cells that run horizontally and they're gravity fed. So you might have a tray system that is along like maybe 150 foot long, the length of the building, and you plant it on one end. And then it's gravity fed down to the other end where you harvest it. So the plant is under LED lights the entire time. And it's basically it's matured when it makes its way across the building. And that's similar to the way the Gotham Greens roof works. We plant the, 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 the seedlings are planted on the south end of the building. And they're in a conveyor system that takes 38 days to get it across to the north end of the building where that tray is in, gets on a conveyor, the conveyor moves it around to where it's, the plants are cut and harvested, and then they're planted by robots, and they come back around to the south face of the building, start their path all over again. So the growing cycle is about a 38-day cycle, and these systems are automated, so they're moving from one side of the building to the other. Law firms really started to get back into the office and if you look at what's happened in, over the last six months, the law firm market or the law firm market is far outpacing what the general office market is doing in terms of getting back to the office. Just in the first quarter, I think we, we you know we track what's going on uh, via the Castle Systems, and the general population was at about forty-eight percent of pre-COVID, while law firms were at sixty-one point nine percent. In the second quarter of the year, that expanded. It went from 49.8% for the general population and 68.2% for law firms. So definitely a push on the law firm side to get their lawyers back into the office for the mentoring, the collaboration, and the socialization. By going into these better spaces, how much are they typically downsizing? Uh, good question. Um, we track that, and of the firms that have moved over the last five years of the 44 firms, we've seen six expand, nine stay about the same size, and 27 have contracted, or uh, 27 have contracted. Of the 27 that have contracted, they've downsized by an average of 31.18%. Um, I would say you see a larger contraction when firms relocate out of the building as opposed to staying within their building and staying within their confines. And I, I'm sorry if you mentioned this earlier, but uh, is do you know what percentage of the firms are renewing versus relocating approximately? If you just look at those numbers, um, of those 44 firms, 27 have renewed and 17 have relocated. 27 have renewed and the rest have relocated. Okay. Um, and the ones that have relocated have all upgraded to better properties. Is that fair to say? 
Generally, yeah. I mean, I would say you're seeing definitely that, that flight to quality that you were talking about. There may be a couple firms that have, um, you know, gone to kind of neutral space, but for the most part, they've they've seen um, a flight to quality and better space, the trophy space in downtown Chicago, primarily the A plus space. What is it about this generation that causes us to, you know, focus on? Why should we care about this Gen Z? Obviously, we should care about all the generations. Sure. But what is it about them that makes them somewhat special? Sure. Well, I think on a on a very practical level, this is the group of individuals that is coming into the workforce, right? I think number one, the easiest thing to understand is this group of individuals is going to be making up, I think the stat is by 2025, we'll be making up 27% of the workforce. So as we consider what our workforce is going to look like, this this is going to be a majority of it in the very short term. I remember having this conversation 10 years about 10 years ago about millennials and how that was going to change the shape of how we work and, and how we come to the workforce. And the same thing's happening with, with Gen Z. So on one level, we need to understand them because they are going to be making up the majority of the, the workforce today. Additionally, they are making up the majority of our consumers, right? So depending on the industry you're in, they are consuming your product. They're consuming your services. They are who we're trying to market to on a large scale. So on that level, it definitely matters. And then additionally, if I can get a little bit, I don't know, touchy-feely about it, they're human beings, right? And it's another layer that we can use to understand the people that we're interacting with day to day, whether at home, whether at work, whether on the subway. So I think there's a couple of reasons that it's meaningful to consider Gen Z. They're often more private on social channels because they've seen how the millennial generation has been impacted by being broadly open, right? The the fact that employers are using social channels to track down and understand people's history. I think the that Gen Z is more acutely aware of some of those things. And while it might seem like they are a more public generation because we see them on Instagram promoting something or sharing a brand in one place or another, the reality is to them, that's work, right? That's hustling. That's doing something a little bit more practical. And the personal element, they're very much more protective of, which is why why apps like Snapchat became as prominent as it did. It's because it exists for a moment in time. It creates that individual connection and then it goes away. So the the kind of digital native aspect and the experience, the COVID experience that we've had over the last few years have definitely defined a lot about what makes Gen Z Gen Z. And in the environment, in the virtual environment where a number of companies are setting people up virtually, maybe they come in the office, can you actually integrate and, and mentorship effectively early on? Because what we're hearing is it's just not effective initially. And mentorship is probably one of the biggest uh, issues. Well, I think I think that you have to have, first of all, I think you have to have meetings after meetings. So I think that if you have a larger meeting, a lot of the communications that are critical actually don't happen in the big meeting. And so I think you have to set up ways that people can get together in smaller groups to exchange their reactions, talk about things they were uncomfortable raising in the big meeting. A lot of stuff that goes on again when when it's easy to do it because you're walking back from a meeting with three other people. On Zoom, the minute that that leave button is hit, that's it. <laughs> and, then, and then you go back to whatever it is you were doing at home if you were paying attention during the meeting to begin with. So it's possible. I think it's just something that you have to do. And, and as we were discussing before, I think the one thing we're missing in a lot of Zoom meetings is there's really nobody who runs the meeting. And I honestly think you need somebody that's almost like a moderator to sort of preserve order, to make sure that the 
topics uh, that are critical get taken care of and that people are uh, engaged in the in the process. So uh, we're going to see uh, Zoom grow or we're going to see, let's say, the idea of using teleconferencing grow uh, over time as we develop the new etiquette about it. But for sure right now, uh, everything that you can imagine being wrong with Zoom is wrong, including that, you know, I call this the the Trump doctrine that just because you shout something doesn't make it true. You know, in Zoom meetings, it's the loudest voice. It's the person who's most verbal. It's the person who's, you know, so most opinionated. And that's rarely productive in a meeting. I mean, what you want to do is get everybody to be thoughtful and to contribute. And the Zoom situation basically isn't there yet. I think the companies are increasingly starting to look at what city do they want their headquarters, if you if you even have a true headquarters, where do they want that to be? Where do they want their concentration of employees to be? And the one thing that's very clear is that as you as part of the hiring equation, part of these conversations now have much more to do with quality of life the ability to live in areas that are safe and secure, transportation issues, and even weather and things like that, much more so than before. I mean, I I think it's it's almost impossible, for example, to hire somebody to move into San Francisco these days. I think that we're, we're actually seeing people come back from the coasts to Chicago for lifestyle reasons. Yeah, and there's this concept of, uh, I think, climate migration. There's people that are moving here. I was just looking at the El Nino uh, or the season. It's going to be a little bit warmer this year in Chicago. Yeah. So 50 degrees in January. Yeah, global right. warming hasn't <clears throat> hasn't hurt Chicago. Right. But, right. but I think also that it depends on your workforce. If your workforce is one that depends on people working for you for 20 years, and growing with your business, that's a completely different business model. You know, today we we have companies that if their employees stayed three years, they would be grateful. Okay, we have we have tremendous turnovers in terms of that. And that's a product of the gig economy. It's a product of virtuality with some of these companies. And it's also a product of a group of employees that that don't believe in the old model that you sign up with one company and that's where you spend your your life or your career. So all of this has changed. So switching gears a little bit to the psychology of the shopper, what's changed and what, you know, with the different generations, for example, let's start with Gen Z, what are they looking for in a shopping experience and how are you tailoring your product to them? I asked one of my Gen Z coworkers how they could shop and he said his girlfriend does it for him. So oh. some things don't change maybe. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I, in all seriousness, no, I think no, it's, it's a relevant question and, and something that we're always looking at and making sure we're evolving, right? Because retail, is all, every industry is evolving. And so for us, we want to be part of that. We want to help retailers. We want to help consumers, you know, make, make it easy for them. But no, Gen, Gen Z, like I think a couple of things. One is, you know, when they were growing up and they were younger, some of their first experiences around finance was during the, the great, you know, recession that we've had in 2009, 2010. So they're budget focused, right? They want something that makes sense, but they'll still shop high-low. They'll look at their specialty stuff. They'll mix in some of the value with, you know, call it more boutique style shopping. A lot of those they'll find and discover online, right? So they'll do a lot of research and discovery through social media channels. 
And I'm sure, you know, if you're a shopper at all, you'll see that stuff pop up. You never heard of this brand before. Before you know it, those brands will open up stores. And so something we're focused on, too, is helping connect those stores, those concepts that don't know how to operate physically, you know, in a physical location into a, how does this work, right? How do, how do you do this? And so we're focused on that. But I think you know, they want things that are value-focused, but they'll shop high at the same time selectively. They want things fast, right? So I think we all know, like, you know, if you order something online, how fast can you get it? And surprisingly, though, because of that, they like to shop in stores, right? They, what's the benefit of going to a store? You can walk away with something. Opportunities. Where do you see, uh, you're always raising money. Where do you see opportunities in the coming months, years? Are there distressed assets that going to be popping up more? Where are those ge- sure. geographically? Are there yeah. certain areas where you all are focused? Yeah, not a good question. I think, look, we're, I think across all of our verticals, we're always fundraising, right? And so we've, you know, we're fundraising now. We're looking to deploy capital where it makes sense, right? So I don't think there's any one asset class that we say, okay, yes, let's just, let's go focus on this. I think, you know, there's certain ones that are having outsized demand right now, right? You think about logistics, the warehousing, you think about data centers, the AI, you know, all of a sudden emerging and exploding and those, you know, all that requires a lot of computing power. But to your point, there's just more fundamental, you know, stuff that we're all away like office, multifamily, hotel, right? That, that are facing higher interest rate environments now. And so if their loans are coming up, they're, they're going to have to figure out how to get recapitalized. And there's a lot of ways you can do that, right? There's a ton of different ways you can recapitalize a property. And so that and I think there's a great opportunity coming up in the next couple of years to do that. And so we'll see. I don't think it's been called fully started yet in terms of just having those initiatives get going. But I feel like the next year or two, there's probably a lot of opportunity. Urban or suburban or? Pro- probably both, right? Probably both. Okay. I think if you think about like downtowns though, right? I think there's a, there's maybe arguably, you know, a bigger opportunity because people have been working from home and, you know, certain Think about like, the high streets of regular neighborhoods are doing really well. Think about Southport in Chicago or Williamsburg in Brooklyn, right? People are spending more time near their homes. So from a retail mixed-use perspective, that's been thriving. And the downtowns have been a little bit, you know, dragging and suffering a bit. But I think that's that'll be cyclical. That'll come back, you know, and there'll be value there as well to pick up along the way. 